Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Hello, Mark. Mark and I are sitting here with our very special guest, Lucy O'Brien. Welcome. Hello, Lucy. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Lovely to have you here, Lucy. Lovely uh, to be here. And you're here for a number of reasons, but mainly because, well, we love you. But okay. also, <laughs> this this very week, I believe, sees the publication of a fully revised and updated edition of your classic Dusty Springfield biography. So yes. congratulations on Thank that. You. It is this week or next week? This week, yeah. It's Great. just been published literally just a couple of days ago. And I'm thrilled, actually, because Michael O'Mara, the publisher, they've done this amazing job on it. It looks really beautiful, but then Dusty... You know, had this real kind of ethereal beauty about her. But they've kind of presented it in a way that's really accentuated her iconic status. Yeah, quite right. We'll be talking about a lot of women on this podcast, including you. Well, mainly you. (laughs) But just just to sort of flag up, we'll be talking, we hope to be talking a little bit about Madonna, a little bit about Skunk and Nancy Skin, a little bit about Taylor Swift. The week's audio interview is with Alicia Keys from 2010. So we're hoping to be talking about all of those things. I'd like to just start by just going back to like Mm. the NME days. Mm. That's probably when I first met you, would have been in the 80s, you were on the NME, yeah. you arrived shortly after. Well, we, we sort of passed slightly like ships in the yes. night because I was on my way out and you, you were on yeah. your way in. But <laughs> I do, I remember, I mean, if you go to Lucy's Wikipedia page, it talks about these sort of factions within the NME. Mm. And I do remember being, I was still allowed to sit in on editorial meetings mm. and I do remember the the slightly factional atmosphere within you yes. all remember that too yes. you're probably bored of talking about this I'm not bored but of talking you were about always, it you were always lovely some of them were a bit intimidating but you, you there was this little kind of Stuart Cosgrove faction wasn't yeah. there yeah. what's your memory yeah. of that well so at the time yeah loosely there, there was the faction with myself and Stuart and Sean O'Hagan yeah. and Paolo Hewitt yes and socialists the socialists, the socialists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, would you yeah. still call yourself a socialist Stuart called it the gale force great and I suppose we wrote with a political critique but then you know actually everybody did yeah. really at that time but I suppose we we were very supportive of Red Wedge and the Labour yes. Party mm-hmm. and the artists that were featured in that like Paul Weller and Billy Bragg and I think Part of the problem was there was there was a sort of a at the time there was a dialectic about what is NME is, yes. is it indie rock is it rock or is it embracing new emerging black music yeah that seemed to be the discourse at the time but when I look at it now I think it I actually think in a way we were all on the same side and yes. it was less about music genres and it was more about a creeping takeover and consumerism and branding of the music press that actually what we were worried about was bigger you know and Mm -hmm. I I just remember that week of the general election I think it was 1987 and we had Neil Kinnock on the cover yeah yes no word of a lie but there was a an editorial in the Sunday Express and I think it was John Juna who was like the editor (laughs) saying what is going on at NME? <laughs> and this was in in the actual yeah, yeah. editorial column. Yeah. Do 
the shareholders of Reed International know what is going on? Extraordinary. It was extraordinary. Yeah. It's like this massive intervention from on high. Uh, I, I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, I come from political left anyway, so my background. That was an aspect of the enemy I was very, very comfortable with. I mean, having read the underground press, which is inherently polit- yes. as much about politics than anything. Yes. And in a way, the enemy, as we knew it then, had developed out of the underground exactly. press. With the Mick Farrans and the Charlie Murrays. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. We yeah. could do with a bit more of that now, couldn't yes. we, really? Yes. I mean, things yes. are so much more perilous yeah. and frightening now. And where is, where is the, you know, where are the voices? Well, yes, yes, yes. I mean, but then you just had the minor strike and, you know... Um, and, and, you know, and the whopping, yeah. uh, News International... And um, the cruise tickets. missiles, Green and Common, yeah. all of that stuff going on. A lot so of agitation. It, yeah, yeah. There was a lot it was a yeah. very tense atmosphere. Yeah. And actually... The Tories won, <laughs> believe it or not. They actually yeah. had a majority yeah. at, at yeah. that point, yeah, unlike yeah. now. But, you know, they had a majority. So I think they felt very entitled to come down really, really hard on yes. anyone who was expressing left-wing opinion in the mainstream media. Yes. So you guys, you can you can go and work for Marxism today or New Statesman, yeah, but don't you dare mm. use yeah. our magazines in the centre of Did the Did you get the, any the outside press? pressure from the publishers, from other people, to tone down the politics of the paper? Oh, God, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, yeah. There, there was a page that was called Manifesto. Do you mm. remember that, yep. Barney? Yeah. I mean, there were interviews with Martin McGuinness, you know, yeah. and there's a friend of mine who said, you know, in the NME, that was the one of the few places you could get some really informed discussion mm-hmm. of Northern Ireland and what was going on right. in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And you had interviews with Tony Benn, and, yes. and, but also great filmmakers as well. Oh. And um, it, it was and like... And the nearest thing that football got to a socialist was Pat Nevin's interview. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So you did, were getting pressure from oh, within... yes, yes. So... Th- there was a change of editor, mm. should we put it, you know... You know. Mm. Yes. <laughs> the, yes. edi- the, the, the editor there, who was there was, was moved and there was a new editor put in place and then a few section editors were removed as well, including Stuart and a whole load of freelancers were... Kind of, it was made clear that we, we weren't really welcome anymore and our work wasn't welcome anymore. Blimey. And so it was very swift... And very sudden, and okay. it did come right that, down from was there a specific um, the management year when that of IPC. Co- was there a specific year when that occurred? Yeah, it was 1987. Mm, right. So it was it was like September 1987, and uh-huh. there, there was we'd been working on a themed issue called Pop Babylon. It was kind of based on Kenneth Anger's book Hollywood, Hollywood Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. And this was where we there was a whole feature about banned album sleeves. And there was Geiger's penis landscape image mm-hmm. that was going to be printed. This makes me laugh now thinking about it because I used to go down as a sub to the workshops at Clerkenwell and the printers. And the printers were guys and they had like page three girls stuck on their walls and, and they came in like, and I think, were well, you just pretending to be outraged? So they come and we can't possibly print this. <laughs> You know, and they've got you know, yeah. busty page three girls. Cool. Like, really? Yeah. You can't print that? Yeah. Really? And then they just use that as an excuse to sort of get rid of a whole load wow. of people and say, you yeah. know, this is absolutely so offensive. It's so offensive. They, they, they can't print it, mm. you know. And then a few years later, they did print it as part of some kind of themed thing. 
But I think overall the the feeling was, or the, the word came down, that questions were being asked in the parent company, Read International, is there a socialist cabal operating mm-hmm. within NME? <laughs> Which the was, yes, was, yeah. Yeah. Yes. and had yes. been for quite a long time. Probably <laughs> <laughs> since the 1960s, you know. Yeah, yeah. But they were absolutely prepared to eradicate it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very noticeable that, that Sands and a melody maker at the time which had many qualities themselves, as the papers said, very good writers. But there was virtually none of that, those politics mm. and those no. two papers. No. You know? no. And that the enemy always felt like it was a broader paper than just a music paper. Yeah. Yes. yeah. That's what I mean by having film, you know, yes, interviews films. with, like, David Cronenberg <coughs> and yeah. J.G. Pallard, yeah, for God's yeah. sake, Martin Amis, yeah. I mean, it was David Lynch. Yeah. You, you, you it was actually close to what, let's yeah. say, the word was attempting to do as a magazine yes. many yeah. years later. Yes. It was just yes. a broader thing. I mean, in a way, that sort of cuts the heart of it, wasn't it? Because this, the sales were declining, as they were for everybody. Yeah. And I suppose there was this thought that, well, you know, no one quite knows what this magazine, what this paper's supposed to be. You yes. know, what is it? Yes. And we need to strip it back down to yes. its kind of mm. core essence, which, yes. which is, of course... You know, white boys with guitars. Yeah, and I—I I mean, not that I was really there. Anyway. I think I probably the last thing I ever wrote for enemy would have been about eighty-seven, but I wasn't coming in. But there was this sense uh, with, with C eighty-six, the yes. famous cassette, and all of that. Yes. Yes. That you know, actually, that's our that's our real base. Yeah. And okay, yeah. so there's a cover on Public Enemy, but mm-hmm. really, it's it's about white boys with guitars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that there was a sort of push to? Yeah, distill the sort of identity of the paper. Yes, definitely after that that schism, you know, it really yeah. was like the before and after. Mm-hmm. And after then the emphasis was much more on, on rock and indie rock and and in a way they pushed themselves up a cul-de-sac because I'm not convinced Absolutely. that that was the right way to go mm-hmm. because, I mean, look at where hip-hop is now. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. so globally dom- dominant. And sales continue to decline anyway. Yeah. Yes. You know, it wasn't yes. as if, oh, well, suddenly we're going to start selling 200,000 thousand yeah. copies a week again and it's a different i mean it's a, yeah. such a cliche now media landscape yeah, yeah. <laughs> that phrase i mm. use that a lot in academia changing <laughs> <laughs> media landscape but i think enemy could have anticipated that in a different way it, it, i mean mm. the melody maker there was a schism within the melody maker staff but basically black mm. music versus white music and yeah. frank yeah. Kern reports when he got public enemy on the cover which i guess be 88 or yeah 87, a huge round the editorial thing, yes. you know. And th- there's also this idea that black faces on the covers of magazines reduce sales. Mm. And yes, we were told that too, yeah. you know, mm. and that, that was something that we had to keep arguing about and saying, well, what's the identity of the of the paper? Is it just about pleasing people and sales? Mm-hmm. Or, or wasn't it always about innovation and kind of breaking yeah. new music and... Look, this is the new music that's that's exciting yeah. and that's coming through now. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's what gave the uh, magazine its strength. G- given our theme for for this week, mm. Lucy, from a female perspective, how do you? What was your experience like coming into what at certain points? been a mm. boys club and I mean, yeah. the, the, there were female writers yeah. from quite early on. But did did you? How was that experience for um, you? Well, I, I started writing for Enemy in the early 80s and it was a bit intimidating at first coming into... I mean, let's face it, it was was very male. I wouldn't say people made me feel unwelcome. No, not at all. Mm. But at the same time, it was stringently competitive and you had to 
I mean, you know, this, you mm. had to be quite tough with your features and your writing and your sense of self. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe at that point, men were more used to the rough and tumble of that. Whereas I think for women, it, it might have been a more difficult environment. Which to, other to, women were writing to, to paper? Into. So at that point, um, Cynthia Rose. Uh, well, Cynthia's yeah, been Cynthia there Rose. for a bit yeah, longer. She'd been there a while. And she'd then, been there since the late seventies. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and there's Michelle Kirsch. Of course, who, great, you, great friend of ours, yeah. <laughs> she's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And Louise Gray, who yeah. I think yeah. had been doing something on Melody Maker and she came over mm-hmm. to NME. There weren't many of no. us. No. There no. weren't. And then Barbara Allen started writing for us and she's got on, she's now That's, got an yeah, amazing exactly. column. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. doing really well. But my, my sense was that you had to, because there was a sort of idea that women either a didn't know that much about music or couldn't really write about it. You had to continually prove yourself. Yes. And most, uh, I, you know, I talked to other female journalists. Mm-hmm. You know, some maybe just before me, like Vivian Goldman, Caroline Kuhn, who say, "Well, yeah, you, you had to be." work twice as hard yes. and be twice as good yeah, as yeah. the next man to yeah. be noticed. And I, mean, I think that's true. From my perspective, because I read all this stuff as part of my job here, is, is that the women's writing stands up not just as well, but frequently considerably better than a lot of the average male ger- pop mm. journalism. And, and that goes right back to the 60s. I mean, one of my yeah. favourite writers we have is Dawn James who wrote for Brave yes. magazine, an yes. absolutely superb writer. Yes. And a, uh, and a former podcast and a guest. Former podcast. Yes. Moreover, yeah, yes. she was terrific. Yeah. She was sitting in that very yeah. seat for <laughs> six months. But, but so I, I mean, it's, it's really striking that, that you know what you say is absolutely true. And as a result, women journalists were twice as good because they had to be twice as good in a way. You know, and you had to have staying power yeah. because it could be quite off-putting. You know, you really had to kind of stick to your guns. Uh, so mm. I think all of us have that. I've noticed, you know, have that sort of quiet determination. Mm-hmm. No, no, we'll just, we'll just keep mm-hmm. going. We're just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And it is quite hard to get further than the foothills. So, you know, you, yeah. you, you might see a lot of female bylines in the down page reviews. Yeah. But you won't really see them in the features or no. the cover features, mm. you know, God forbid. That's mm. where the real, mm. well, if you want, boys club really yeah. exists. Less so alone on the editorial staff. Mm. I mean, uh, Carol Clark was one of the yes. rare ones who managed to sort of yeah. Lynn Hanna um, yes. and, and Nick Logan employed quite a few yes. on the face. Yes. You know, that, yes. was, that was a much more welcoming environment, yes. I yes. suspect. Of course, we can transpose this whole argument to the boys' club of rock and roll itself. Well, yes. And, yes. and uh, exactly. so I, I, I had a question for you, which was, you know, you have written the definitive book on, you know, the what's your subtitle? The Definitive History of Women in, in Rock, Pop and Soul. Shebop, which is now in its, well, I don't know how many iterations. Third edition. Third edition. It's going to be 25 Fantastic. next Well, it's <laughs> like a Bible. I mean, it really is like, like the Bible. And, mm-hmm. you know, just such a fantastic thing to do. Were you, when did you first think, were you still at the NME when, when you had this, this idea that possibly there was a book like this to be written? Well, it was little seeds, little seeds. So so I was always interested in feminism and I got myself into trouble at school by bringing spare rib and putting it, putting it on tables in the common room. Because <laughs> I, I went to a convent school. Right. And I remember, isn't youth an amazing thing? I remember putting up a poster for the National Abortion Campaign up. And one in of a, the in nuns, a convent school? 
bloody comedy. What that's, was I that thinking? That is pure punk rock. What was I, but I, so I, I mean, it's obviously it. that's, I that's, just did that's, it. That is, I just, yeah, and, and then Anon came in and said, we don't have views like this in no. this school. And, well, of course, um, you had a punk band called The Catholic yes, Girls. Yes, we were called The Catholic Girls. Yes. So, yeah, so, and we also did a school magazine called Within These Walls, which was named after... Do you remember there was a show on ITV that was about a women's prison, and it was called Within These Walls? <laughs> I, I can remember quite a few women's prison dramas. What was the, it was a very famous Australian one, wasn't it? But we won't go there. Uh, yeah, really prison of Soul Blockade. So prison of Soul Blockade. So you can see there's a theme emerging. So, so there is, was, yeah. Women, really prisons and rock and roll. I was really interested in two things, feminism and music. So yeah, sure. I always combine those two things. And I wrote for Spare Rib magazine in yeah. the end. And I was writing for NME. And I think every music writer contributes something of themselves, mm. don't they? And mm. you know, it's like I, I think music writing is like a vocation because there's not much money in it, so mm. you do it because sure. you love it. And I suppose what I like to think I brought was some kind of feminist critique in there. Well, and, you, and, you did. You, know, you absolutely did. Push it through. Yeah, yeah. And so part of that was. I need to interview female artists because they're just not featured enough mm-hmm. in the pages and to try and push for them to have bigger feature space. And so that was my project, if you like, through mm-hmm. the time I was there. And so whenever a female artist came to town, I would interview her. Mm. And it was everyone from kind of Patti LaBelle to Chrissy Hine to... You know, a lot of, and, and I, and I think in the end, I ended up meeting so many amazing women, mm-hmm. and also after I left mm-hmm. NME, and I, I remember, like meeting Nina Simone. That was a really memorable Absolutely. interview. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then uh, after a while, I thought, this is like an archive. Yeah. I've got this archive now, yeah. and it, it seemed to form itself. It's like there has to be a history now. And I looked around and at that point, there wasn't a history of women in popular music. So I thought, well, it's time to write one then, isn't it? So I got in touch with my friend Margaret, who is an editor at Penguin, and and she she did a proposal and and she said, yes, right, let's go for it. Great. And then, so 95, Mm -hmm. that was when it first came out. Well, let's talk about your first book and one of the great female pop stars certainly this country's ever produced dusty and we mentioned that the, the new the new edition of this i mean we all worship Dusty yeah. springfield and it's such a fascinating story of yeah. a woman in that era yes. and yes. how yes. she coped with a number of issues yes yes <laughs> it still is fascinating yeah yeah i mean what so had you always had you listened to her from when you were a little girl and what i mean so why why what gave you the idea dusty bug yeah um i always loved her hits and i remember being very struck this was more when i was in a, a punk in my teenage years yeah. phillips had released one of these compilation albums that dusty always hated but it was a very iconic black and white do you remember I've the one? Got and, and i still own black it. and white and 2020 greatest yes. hits i yes. think it was and, her, and and she had that look where she had her sort of really, really platinum blonde hair and her dark eyes. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to my friend Claire, I mean, this woman is so enigmatic and so interesting, isn't she? Yes. And then she just disappeared. It was like yeah. at that point, I mean, I think it was in the, it was the late 70s and she literally just disappeared. Mm. Nobody knew where she was mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, moving on 10 years, Phonogram released the Silver Collection 
And I was lucky enough to interview her at that point yeah. and sort of start to find out what was happening. She was about to move from L.A. back to the U.K. she just had that hit with the Pet Shop Boys. Yes. What have I done to deserve so this? So suddenly it was like <coughs> so, happening yes. for her again. Yes. Yeah. And I wrote up the interview for City Limits magazine, where I was working at the time. And then an editor at Sidgwick and Jackson got in touch and said, would you like to do a biography? And I was like, whoa, yeah. Great. Fantastic. And that's how, that's how it emerged. Yeah. One of the three pieces that we're featuring is a piece you wrote on Dusty. And, I mean, I, I checked this, the dates here. You wrote this, and she literally died about three weeks later. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. I, I was I was really struck yeah, by that. Yeah, because it's yeah. issue date, The Observer... 21st February mm-hmm. 99. Yeah. She died on March the 2nd. Wow. I know. I mean, yeah. and you, yeah. you mention like in the piece really. that she has inoperable, yes. untreatable breast cancer. Yes. But you couldn't have known that she was about to die. No. And it's a really nice summation of what made her so great. And how, how often did you interview her? So I interviewed her the once. Just the once? In Just the late the 80s. Right. In, in the late 80s. Before you started working yeah. with her. How, how yes. was she to interview yeah. I always say she stands out to me because I've interviewed quite a few different pop and rock artists sure. and um, over the years. But what stood out for me was how she genuinely listened to the questions, mm-hmm. thought for a bit. She didn't answer straight mm-hmm. away. She thought for a bit and mm-hmm. then and then she gave a really original, thoughtful answer. Yeah. And she obviously enjoyed conversation. She enjoyed thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you really feel that there was a mind at work mm-hmm. there. Yes. And also very keen sense of humour, yeah. quite surreal I mean, well, sense you know, of humour. So before we started this very brief chat, I was saying about in my job, I've been reading interviews with her going right back to when she was with the Springfields. Yeah. And as far back as that. And there is a qualitative difference between her being interviewed and just about any other pop star yes. that came across. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, and... Part of that is the difficulty the interviewers have because they're used to the people coming out with platitudes. Yeah, and sort exactly. Of stuff. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and she would talk with a remarkable degree of honesty about what she found difficult in different situations. Yes, yes, we were yes. talking about her nasty experience with Buddy Rich in yeah, New York. Yeah. And she came back and talked about that very frankly yeah, indeed. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what happened with Buddy Rich? Could, so that, that's a great... I mean, I think there in a nutshell you've got what it's like to be a woman in the mm-hmm. 1960s in the music right. business. <laughs> yes. Basically... So she, she'd been booked to headline. She'd had, you know, this is 1966. She'd That's had right. a lot of hits. She was booked to play Basin Street East, a residency, and and he was supporting her, but obviously his masculine pride couldn't take that, you know, yes. this, this English... Oh, he was an alpha male, wasn't he? Mm. So, first of all, when it came to rehearsals, she asked if she could rehearse with his band because she was going to be playing with Mm. the band, and he refused. And then he started getting very uptight about her having top billing and insisted Mm -hmm. that she should support him. And then they got into a huge argument... But what I find quite funny, I know I shouldn't, is that she hit him, she you know, she whacked him round the head and he had a toupee and it went flying. Oh, <laughs> um, dear. And then at the end of the residency... The he band, was rude about her on stage, wasn't oh, he? Oh, and he was rude about her on stage. Yeah. But at the end of the residency, his band gave her a pair of boxing gloves with a card saying Slugger Springfield. <laughs> that's fabulous. Wow. Yeah. That's fabulous. But, but you know, I, I've been thinking about this anew and, you know, in some ways she has been 
presented as a victim because of her mm-hmm. struggles with addiction and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And in a way, there was a, there was a fragility about yeah. her, and that's, that's what comes through in her music. Mm-hmm. But also, there was an incredible determination mm-hmm. and fighting spirit there mm-hmm. as well that mm-hmm. I think needs to be honoured, yeah. you know. And more and more, I look at the music industry and what just what women have to do... Mm-hmm. Okay, you can have a, a certain amount of success, but to have sustained success—that's yeah. a whole yeah. other story. I mean, you know? one thing that's really striking was also in a lot of what I've read is how fastidious she was as a recording artist. That she really, really cared about yes. the art yes. of what she was doing, <clears throat> and she wouldn't just go in, stand behind the mic, and sing the song yes. as asked to you by yes. a producer. Yes. Sometimes the point of a problem, it being a problem in terms yeah. of the process. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. famously, and also, you know, she had her insecurities. I think when Jerry Wexler said, You're standing in front of the microphone, Aretha Franklin stood in front of it. Well, she just wasn't well, the wisest thing to say. Jerry, sing thanks. after that, you know. No. But, but, but I, I, I've loved the fact that, you know, there's all these reports, you know, her in a studio, and it's, No, I'm going to do that again. No, I'm yes. going to do that again. I've got to yes. get this right. Yes. It was an incredible perfectionism, and I interviewed Julie Felix for the updated version mm-hmm. of, of the book, and they were they were friends and they were lovers as well. Mm. And I didn't know. Dusty, Julie said, "Well, Dusty gave me a lot of advice," and I said, "Well, what sort of things mm. would she say?" And she said, "Well, there was a record that I put out that she said to me afterwards. She said, Julie, you are out of tune there. You shouldn't have let that record be mm. released. Mm. Oh, well, the producer was in a hurry. Well, you know, you you've got yes. to you've got." Speak and up. she was very particular yeah. about that, yeah. which I thought was quite interesting. No. You know, she wouldn't let anything go that she thought wasn't quite. I I've, nev- to the I've never heard the album she did after Dusty in Memphis, which is currently very hard to find, which is the one she did in New York, with, with which is a much more comfortable experience. Yes. And it was a very different thing. Yes. No, I, 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 she's a great artist. I mean, it's an astonishing singer. I mean, even the biggest, lousiest of her sort of 60s pop tunes just fantastic. Well, they're great songs. They're incredible arrangements. Yeah. They're, you know, some of them are rather overwrought, but so because she carries it. Yes. Yeah. She's just. She the doesn't most... overdo it. No. She never overdoes yeah. it. No, she doesn't. Yeah. She yeah. doesn't. So I, I you mean, can have that massive yeah. orchestra, but mm. she's so sometimes quite restrained. You, you mentioned her sexuality in, mm. in, in the piece that, that, I'm, that I'm talking about here that, that came out just before she died. You quote a friend of hers and a, an American songwriter, Ali Willis, saying, yeah. without question, the lesbian issue was the icing on the cake of her difficult reputation, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the obvious yeah. and perhaps like banal thing to say is it must have been very difficult to yeah. be gay yeah, yeah. in that swinging 60s era exactly. of, you know, yes. Scylla and Lulu and yes. all, all the others. Yeah. So do you think it would have been any easier for her today? That's a good question. I mean, I was talking to a um, rock manager just recently mm-hmm. who was saying, well, you know, actually, she said, I know a lot of women in the industry, certainly in, in pop, who are either gay or bisexual, mm-hmm. yeah. who still keep their sexuality hidden because mm-hmm. it'll affect their record sales. Yeah. 
massively affect their record sales. So that's still the and sort that of still, word. Yes. That's but you see, what happens though is it. She said that they have an awful lot of mental health issues because that's because what it leads to. Be true. Yes. Uh, I mean, yes. this can leads on to, to skin and skunk and Nancy. I mean, mm. you know her story very, very yes. well because that's the third piece. Is a profile of skin from the telegraph magazine in the summer of 99 yes and 20 years ago yeah and you mentioned that she is open about her bisexuality which has earned her respect and hasn't hindered sales but i don't know what you would say now well you know i've been talking with her recently and in fact i saw them the skunk and nancy have just released this massive like triple (laughs) album 25 live at 25 years since their first gig at the splash club in king's cross but i think even skin would say now that you know she would never do it any other way she was Mm -hmm. always going to be open about her sexuality but she thinks it did compromise their success certainly in America also um, skin made co- her, her less and marketable. Her skin yeah. and, yes, yeah. and being yeah. a black woman singing in white you know, rock, white rock yeah. sure. scenario. Sure. And she thinks that, you know, it did play against her yeah. in lots of ways. And also just in the music press as yeah. well. Certain Which makes her endurance yeah. all more remarkable. Yes. I mean saying that yes. it, it's the same band, the same personnel, twenty five years later yeah. still playing together. Yeah. And I think it's quite interesting. She did go through a period where she had a couple of solo yeah. albums in in the two thousands, and they were really good. But it, it was something was missing, and it was when the band got back together that the full power of her mm-hmm. voice came to the fore right. again. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's so interesting that that alchemy that's in a band, and it really works with 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 that lineup. Of another of your biographical subjects, one cannot say really that this this woman has been a victim. I'm talking about Madonna. Like an icon, it's your biography that came out in 2007. And we feature a piece which I'm I'm guessing sort of drew on the research you've done because it's interviews you've done about her in the past on September 2007. I mean... You got, we talk about Dusty Springfield. Mm. You know, you, you can't really think about artists like Dusty Springfield mm. in the same way in a post-Madonna universe. Madonna yes. really kind of, she really did change the paradigm, didn't she? She did. I mean, she, she, was, she was tough and determined in a way that perhaps no one had, had been able to be before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some great quotes in here about what she was like as a kid. You know, I mean, these, these are terrific. So driving around in a Mercury Capri with her boyfriend, Wynne Cooper, listening to Ziggy Stardust when she was 14 and smoking weed. I love that image. Yes. And yes. then this, this thing you, you mentioned, a former school friend says that she changed from being this kind of pretty cheerleader to being this kind of boho didn't shave her legs yes you know yes. and she was i mean i interviewed her once when she first came to england and everybody yeah. was 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 a hit or just just in yeah. bubbling under yeah and i might you know i i say this obviously i'm saying this as a sort of male interviewer i was <laughs> quite taken back by just the sheer you know, you could. This girl was going places, mm, and you just kind mm. of. She had a kind of extraordinary determination mm. and pragmatism about yes. her. Yes. I mean, what? Yes. Tell us about 
Madonna and, you know, uh, how you found writing yeah. a biography of I, her? I think the most interesting thing for me when I was researching it, and I went to Detroit and spent some time in Michigan, you know, going to hanging out with some of her old school friends, her old boyfriend, doing like a recce of like the church she went to, the high school she went to, yeah. and talk. And what I found most fascinating was how how she wasn't an alpha female that yeah she had that whole cheerleading side mm-hmm. but she also was quite reserved and aloof as well and there is a side to her well certainly back then it was like she was someone in waiting mm-hmm. so the madonna that we see now was 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 not there mm-hmm. then she was kind of it was germinating and it actually took quite a few years before that yeah. that Did madonna it take new york <coughs> exploded for that Yes, yes. But those early years in New York weren't easy well, at no. all. But the, the yeah. New York, instead of as far as the city has a personality, it was almost the personality she adopted for herself. In it a was way. the right place for it her to be. It was the right be. place yeah. for her, yeah. But I uh. think she'd done a, the work beforehand in that she went to University of Michigan, she studied uh. contemporary dance. And so she was coming at it, and she kind of hides this a little bit, but she's an intellectual, and she was coming at her work conceptually as like a pop artist. She loved Andy Warhol, Mm -hmm. and in a way, what she was doing was very conscious. Mm -hmm. It wasn't... And I think that's what marks her out and makes her different from a lot of the more usual female stars. Yeah. Because she did have a critical Uh, apparatus uh, around it. I mean, also, you can say that... Let's say she isn't the world's greatest singer... But as a singer, she has enormous personality. I was once asked to produce music for CD-ROMs for news multimedia, and they wanted a track which sounded like Madonna. And it's quite easy to produce a track of that period that sounds like Madonna. Yes. But without Madonna, they're nothing. No. They it's are absolutely nothing. Isn't it? You know. Yeah. And while she's yeah. a great singer, take her away, and you literally have yes. dust. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right, that's right. There's something she inhabits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I have I've yeah. mixed feelings about Madonna. I can't say that I revere her in the way no. that I revere some of the female artists we've already talked yeah. about today. Yeah. But yeah, I would sure. also say someone like Kate Bush, I'd say, just has, has a ton more musical talent. Yes. But yes. Madonna's gifts are to do with kind of bringing all these different sort of yes. media together, yes. creating yes. this persona. Yes. There's, there's only one record which is yeah. the Immaculate yeah. Collection. Because that's actually her best stuff, which is her first three, yeah. four albums sort yeah. of thing. Her pursuit of whatever musical trend was going after that, yeah. di- I think, diluted her sort of the, the energy of what she does. But certainly, those things, Papa Don't Preach, that sort of period yeah. of stuff, are just yeah. fantastic records. Well, we, we emailed a little bit yesterday, and I think some of her collaborators have been great. You could argue she's been a little too reliant on male collaborators. I don't know if that's a fair statement, but some of them have played a big part in yes, her music, yes. have they not? She works very well one to one, you know, so yes. her and William Orbit or Mirway. Yeah, exactly, or yes. the French go Mirway, yes. that's yes, it. And, and I think, you know, Pat Leonard as yes. well, there was oh, a yeah, lot of just totally. the two of them writing together. Yes. I, I think Like a Prayer is probably music the most impressive yes. um, she made. And, yes. and yes. you, of course, could say that has something to do with Pat Leonard. Would she. Would she have been able to write those songs without I, I think that the input? Power, you know, the power of Madonna. I mean, and, and I had, it was great talking to Pat Leonard and Steve Bray yes. uh, about that Like a Prayer era because that was, that was when people first started looking and thinking, oh, she's an artist. Yes. And I think basically 
Each album is a story, is a narrative, and yes. it's, it's autobiographical. It's where she is psychologically. Yes. And, and so Like a Prayer was about the patriarchy and Catholicism and her Catholic upbringing. So she, what she does is she has all those ideas swirling around her head and the lyrics and the melody, and then she works with someone who's a musician-producer like Pat Leonard mm. who can help make manifest and give depth to it and a whole sound to it. And yes. she, he said she came to him with the idea of a gospel choir that, and, and she was there through the whole of all those studio sessions. So it's very equal collaboration. I mean, yeah. In, in yeah. a way, on her records, she's like the executive producer yeah. to her collaborators who are yes. technically producers. Yes, yes mm. that's yeah. right, that's right. This affords a neat segue. We like segues in we the RBP podcast. And right now, probably the biggest star on the planet is Taylor Swift. Um, yes. You can't say she's the new Madonna. She comes from a very different place. We thought it'd be amusing to just sort of investigate her back pages, really, and go back to you know, the, the fact she really did start out in, in country. But already, yes. that first album that she yes. did... You, you hardly call it sort of traditional country music. No, it's country. It was the country of that time. Yeah, it's yeah, country absolutely. pop, really yeah, sort of yeah, shading yeah. into just mainstream mm. pop, you know. But she's massive. Just released a new album. We're featuring a review of that very first album uh, that came out in 2006 by Jeff Tamarkin. And mm. it does give her real kind of credit in terms of the fact she wrote these songs. She was 16. Mm, I think mm, she, she mm. was signed as a writer, as a songwriter. Yes at the age of 14 you know so she's precocious and then some whatever you think of her music I mean she has written certainly some I think really quite interesting lyrics you know I don't love it I love there's the odd thing I I knew your trouble I think is magnificent obviously she's collaborated with this sort of you know the the pop maestros like Max Martin Mm. but you know that that's the reality of if you want hits you work with Max Martin Ed Sheeran and so forth you know that's how you get these gigantic Spotify hits. I mean, I don't have a huge amount, so we're running three pieces. I've mentioned the review. There's an interesting Nick Hasted piece from 2009 about precisely the way country pop is moving ever closer to the mainstream of music. And then there's a great piece by Kate Mossman from The Word in 2010 where she goes to see Taylor at Wembley Arena. She's already like a massive star. She's selling out Wembley Arena. Mm. You know, mm. the, uh, thousands of hysterical mm. schoolgirls are coming yeah. to worship this ostensibly country figure. Yeah, well, we don't really yeah. think of as country anymore. Yeah. But Kate has some some fascinating like insights into the sort of what she calls the sort of cult of Taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> that um, word's been used quite a lot. What what is the cult of Taylor Swift? Well, what I is think this? so. So she says something quite it's interesting. Like a sorority or something. She says she. She points out that there's this there's this it's like paradox 
that, that Taylor Swift writes about the minutiae of her sort of romantic life. Yes. In almost like the way that Amy Winehouse did. Yes. She writes about boyfriends yes. as if yes. she's reading from her diary. Yes. But then the spectacle of the Taylor Swift show is the sort of opposite of that. It's yeah. this huge sort yeah. of yeah. global yeah. superstar thing. Ambition. A massively ambitious. Ambition. And, and then of course now there was a big Laura Snape's interview with her in The Guardian yeah. last weekend, yeah. which, which was uh, about, among other things, it was about the sort of politicisation of, uh, the belated politicisation of Taylor Swift. Because yeah. when Trump got in, she said nothing. And right. she claimed it because she was in a terrible state. And now now she's coming out the single you need to calm down is very very sort mm. of pro mm. lgbt you know she's so, so she's more confident now i think so i think she's so. had a certain amount of success and she's maturing mm. so absolutely that um, gives that gives women a lot of strength i think you know if, if longevity gives you strength doesn't it yeah and you know in those early years she was probably nervous about oh god am i going to offend the good old boys mm -hmm. particularly nashville yeah and then she was probably the turning the line have you seen what happened to the dixie, the dixie chicks? Chicks. Yes, exactly exactly yeah. so but now she's probably feeling confident enough yeah. and well, she's a big enough, enough star oh, yeah. she's, just, she's, just she's not gonna yeah. lose her fan base yeah. no that's the thing, thing. Yeah. so i think she's i mean do you so she bop is in its third edition did, did you write about People like Taylor Swift and that? She was just before... So the third edition came out 2013, so okay. she was just emerging at that point. Yeah. But it's going to be 25 years old next year. Yeah. And I think You'll have of to write about Taylor Swift. I will, won't I? I, I, I think of Shebop as like a person now. She's out <laughs> in the world doing her thing. And then every so often she comes back home again and says, Hi, Mum. <laughs> Lucy, let's move on to another sort of female icon of the, of the modern age. Um, the week's audio interview is with Mark. Yes, with Alicia Keys. It's Maureen Payton from 2010. It's, it's, for a starter, Maureen is not so much a music interview as a sort of personality mm. interview. I assume it's done something like The Mail on Sunday. Mm. Yeah, I think it would have been all The Express, I It's think. also a classic half hour in a hotel room somewhere. To be fair to Alicia Keys, she does send her PR people out so there isn't somewhere, somewhere to mm. hover over. But she, uh, and Maureen, of course, asked the question, you know, are you seeing anyone at the moment? Which gets oh, back, God. which yes. gets kicked into the long grass. <laughs> That's the thing yeah. we would have asked in our NME days. Uh, <laughs> may I ask if you're... <laughs> Seeing anyone who's romantic Who are you shagging, I can't talk about that. I'd rather not mention. She says you can't even mention her brother. That's like typical tabloid, isn't it? Well, it is. But she does talk about her family background, brought up by mother and a grandmother. She got to know her father again and her stepbrother. Now, she doesn't really talk about much in terms of detail about it, saying you know, how wonderful her childhood was. But at one point, Maureen asks her whether she ever tempted by the temptations of pop fame, like drugs, sex, mm. blah, blah, blah. And we're just going to run a little, little clip, which is about her av avoiding temptation. It's a very short clip, but she really lets you know 
where she was coming from in a way that she doesn't actually open up at all throughout the rest of the interview. Some people live for the fortune Some people live just for the fame Some people live for the power Avoiding temptations in this business, I suppose we all know what they are, but how do you do it? You just sort of, you're very strong-minded. No, I think that um, what kind of did it for me, what does it for me on that side, I grew up around drugs, sex, alcohol, and death. And I yeah. think that when you see that in your life, you kind of know what it does to you, and there's yeah. really no desire to, to do it. Yeah. I don't have any desire. There's no, I'm fine. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty interesting. I mean, that's the nearest she gets to actually mm. saying anything really about herself. Mm. A lot of the rest of it, she's going on about her Buddhism, her spiritual... She uses the word spiritual about 15 times in half yeah. an hour. Yeah. How she's blessed with love about her charitable work, you know, talks a bit about coping with fame. It's... Mm. It's it's what it is. It's that yeah. type of interview. Yeah. She sounds well trained. Yeah, and she sounds yeah. very. And there's something a little enervating about yeah. listening mm, to stars hard. like that from the last. Because you just don't feel you're getting it. Well, I, I, could, that I, I couldn't agree yes. more. I'm a yes. massive R and B fan, and she's yeah. one of the least interesting R and B singers around. But just that moment, I thought was pretty interesting. Yes. Like she suddenly opens up to this is where I'm coming from. She you did. know, um, yeah. we're going to play a clip later on, which is Quince's, Quincy Jones's advice. She was getting into doing production, film production, and was hoping to get into record production. <laughs> and, Quince, and that's based on Quincy Jones's advice. He calls it where you earn money horizontally, not in that sort of <laughs> sense. Yeah. But, but the idea yeah. I've never heard it quite put, no, like put that way. But, but essentially, you can put your feet up on a sofa and you're earning money because yeah. you're getting rolled to small yeah. stuff right. you've done for other people. Yeah. So that's Alicia Keys. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Shall we talk then about everything that's new on RBP yeah. for subscribers? Uh, I mean, I'll rattle through this fairly quickly. Rattle through. Dawn James interviewing the small faces, in this particular case, Kenny Jones from Rave 1965, and he says it would be wonderful to have enough money and not to worry anymore. We've come from homes where money has never been plentiful. Well, A, that's true. B, they weren't making any money because Don Arden was, was taking them off yes. solidly. Yeah. I mean, they were on like £10 a week wages with records in the top 10. I mean, it was just it's scandalous. Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty good interview with The Temptations by Phil Simons in Disc from January 73, around the time of Papa's Rolling Stone, with the hilarious headline, Hitler's part in the rise of the temps. Uh, oh, 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 ouch. Uh, ouch. Uh, Explain. Well, the group referred to Norman Whitfield affectionately as Hitler. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that that it could only happen in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Norman Hitler Whitfield. Um, to believe it. interesting Tim Loth interview with Iggy Pop from Record Mirror in 1977 when Iggy I don't know if he's drugs in 77 uh, he's not a full blown no. smack addict but anyway he, he's clearly he's virtually impossible to interview that's the, the thing you get and, mm. and Tim Loth is a fan and he's really struggling Iggy comes up with stuff like violence is an indulgence it's the modern counterpart of Augustus Tiberius and strawberries sent down from the Swiss Alps by runners 
iced. <laughs> God bless Iggy. Um, I mean, but, who else will give you uh, quotes like but, that? But then, then, then this ends with this great reaching the rainbow because he's playing the rainbow that, that night. We get out of the coach. Iggy comes up and puts an arm around me. His other arm holds a very large glass jug filled with ice and orange juice. Well, Tim, he croons, are you coming to the sound check? Okay. Well, that's mighty gracious of you. He flings the glass of jug in the middle of Blackstock Road, spraying jagged glass chunks and ice cubes all over the white lines and tarmac. <laughs> he stalks off in an inexplicable rage. If he weren't such a stinking genius, I'd say he had a head filled to the brim with shaving foam and pig's droppings. <laughs> but somewhere in that crazy garbage is something really beautiful. Listen for it. I mean... Mm. That, that that sort of tells you what the whole interview is. And this is like. on the back yeah. of the idiot where he yes. really has, thanks to Bowie, he's established a new kind of place for himself, yes. hasn't he? Yes. I mean I yes. saw him yes. on that on that tour. And it was it was a yeah. different kind of Iggy. Yeah. That was a great record, Lost for Life yeah, was yeah, a yeah. Oh, record. Yeah. I remember so, um, seeing them at him at Leeds University. Right. At that time. Where you were yeah, you were, and yeah, you, yeah. you you ran a you had a magazine there, didn't um, you? yeah, is well I, right? I worked on Leeds Student. Least um, that's which it. Sorry, was, yeah, uh, yeah. The editorship was a sabbatical position, so it was actually quite well funded. It was, right. it yeah, was really back in the good, good old days. Yeah, back in the good old Leeds days. was an important music town, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. The reason I went was because of the music. Yeah, um, bands like Gang of Four, of Delta Five. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Lemmy interviewed by Phil Sutcliffe in Sound Seventy Nine. Lemmy's just a great interviewee. I mean, yeah, you know, you know yeah. it's just like. That was a great thing about the mod movement first time round. We used to have quite long hair and we really knew how to comb it. <laughs> yeah. And, and associate Lemmy with comb. Yeah, well, then, then he, talking about his own appearance, even a pig's ear would be too complimentary. Look at this, the face that sank a thousand ships. You know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's always. Now, this other one is Amy Grant. Do you know anything about Amy Grant? Christian rock star. Does she appear? Yeah. Do you write about female um, Christian uh, rockers? Yeah, I think she does make an appearance in Shebop and she she's made an appearance in. A couple of things I've written. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, because yeah. this, this is only the second piece we've ever found we, we, by one of our writers, Michael Goldberg, Rolling Stone in '85, and she comes out with all kinds of you know, anti-abortion stuff. She's she's really hardcore, but she likes the idea of being sexy but within marriage. You know, it's this sort of thing. It's just, my hormones are just as on key as any other twenty-four-year-olds. I know the deep need in a marriage for sex. But then she's really disproving with Prince, basically humping on stage. She says, if someone wants to do this at home, fine. If I want to do this at home, fine. I don't want to watch Prince doing it. I, I remember that interview. <laughs> do I remember you? reading that at the time. Well, you probably did part of your <laughs> yeah. research. Um, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 it's interesting. It's slightly dispiriting. <laughs> I mean, but there, there you go. Well, it's interesting to read about someone like Amy Grant from that era well, at a time yeah. now when Christian fundamentalism is back with a vengeance. Yeah. And, I assume and, and there abortion are, is outlawed. Well, no, no, is, no. I mean, uh, exactly. It's all her fault. It's all Amy a national abortion campaign rally that I first saw Gang of Four and Delta Five play right? live. They were on the back of a lorry. Fantastic. Um, and Amy Grant was not on the bill. No. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that issue never goes away. Oh, my um, God. It's, it's terrifying. Jump it? forward to July 1999. Tim Westwood had been shot at uh, about a week before. He was driving his car and some guy yes. shot him. sure he didn't stage his well, own well, shooting? <laughs> that's, that's another sort of debate entirely. It's Barbara Ellen, who I is writing, I adore. She's talking about the, the way in which white people will take on black personas 
will listen to black music. The reverse is very rarely true. You don't get many, you know, Scott yeah. Nancy and Skin. Yeah. You know. yeah. But it starts with a friend of mine was at the Notting Hill Carnival a couple of years ago and happened to catch Radio 1 DJ Tim Westwood in action. According to her, Westwood had barely begun when he suddenly started directing the crowd. All you white people, go to the back, and all my black brothers, come down to the front. <laughs> Westwood was also said to be very fond of employing the word niggas in a positive way when addressing his friends and acquaintances. We should all be very fine and funky were it not for the fact that Westwood is the 42-year-old son of the former Bishop of Peaceborough and frankly, my dear, is white as cocaine. Right. It's very funny. I mean, I, I, I find Barbara Ellen writing about yeah. music. I, yeah. I find her yeah. very, very amusing. And she does... I remember once Frank Broughton and Bill Bruce and I were kind of driving back or something and talking about Tim Westwood. And Frank was fantasising about what Tim Westwood would be... How he had talked to his father over a meal in the restaurant, you know? <laughs> well, the Bishop of Peaceborough. Bishop of Peaceborough. <laughs> I have this one abiding memory of Tim Westwood being, being stuck in traffic on the Marylebone Road and also stuck like in the lane next to me was Westwood in the sort of Westwood mobile. So he's oh, wow. sitting there, of course, playing very, very loud hip hop yes. and with sort of Westwood written all over this oh, no. vehicle. And it was just so sad. Yeah. It looked, yeah, he looked yeah. so absurd and he has become such an absurd figure. Hasn't but it's he? like a character, isn't it? It's like it, Ali G almost. Well, he, I, mean, I think, yeah. I think yeah. he but was without, a big inspiration yeah, for yeah, Ali G. Right. But without the humour. Remarkably humorless man, you know, very, very full of himself. You know, people like David Rodgan have sort of pulled off the trick of being a white DJ mm. around black mm. music mm. and mm. by and large done it quite well. Though yes. Rodgan's had his Westwood moments, mm. actually, I know that there's a documentary quite recently on television where you watch how some of it from through your fingers from behind a sofa. Yeah. Yeah. But right. but Tim Westwood, the, the, the idea of a white DJ blackening up mm. I mean it's kind of reverse black and white minstrel show mm. sort of stuff it's like he, he he is like the jerk he doesn't realise yeah. that he's well white. she talks about the jerk does in she, peace does... <laughs> precisely that yeah. 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 she actually yeah. mentions that does she, that's in, so in relation yeah. to this yeah so anyway so that, 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 I suppose what, what a lot of the black artists that he's featured respect him because basically he's carved out a space for them I think on, they respect him because he helps radio. himself records yeah. yeah, I wouldn't put that's, it much beyond that. That's the name brutally. of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, if, yeah. Same with David. I saw. Yeah. I, I saw when I saw Eminem at 2001 at the Doctors Arena, and Westwood was the DJ, and it was excruciating. He was talking <laughs> about the girls' thongs and all oh, sorts no. of stuff. It no. really was eye-wateringly yeah. awful. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my con- contribution. Well, you got any I think of, I uh, think I think it's probably time to wrap up, right, um, to wrap but not up. not wrap without <laughs> not without thanking our special guest Lucy O'Brien, and not without bigging up. Yeah. Uh, to use a sort of Westwood, Westwood, bigging up. Uh, well, everything that well, Lucy's done. She's a white artist who who, yeah. who collaborated and worked a lot with black artists. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but she did it in a way that was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, she 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 was so respectful. We got a very early interview. With her. I think she was yeah. still the Springfields, and she'd just been to America for the first time, and she said how she sat in her room listening to these soul records. And she's yeah, talked about these yeah, soul yes. records. This is like 1963 yeah, or something like that. Yeah. And her love of black yes, music just yes, oozes yes. us. Well, and you quote P.P. P. Arnold, who's yes. recently enjoyed Pat a Arnold. kind of renaissance. Yeah. He's wonderful. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. you said, I mean, she says she was, Dusty was the soul singer. Yes. 
Yes, that's right. It's, I mean, yeah. there were good. I mean, yeah. look, even Silla Black was a pretty great oh, yeah, singer. No, the, Do you know Sandy Shaw? I think what's but, interesting about the dynamic is that Dusty worked with them and she lived it. Yeah, you know, she lived it, and and she had them singing with her. She learnt so much. From yeah, them. she's more of a soul singer, for example, than Dionne Warwick is a soul singer. I think that's right. Uh, even though they were working in not dissimilar territories, I mean, I could imagine Dusty working with Bacharach and David. Mm. And, but, she did, and she, she did, did some she did some exa- exactly yeah. but yeah. she's a distinctly more soulful singer than yes. Dionne Warwick even yes. though I love Dionne Warwick she had that power yeah. behind it yeah, yeah. But so, also the emotional. This is a yes. sort of emotional. We do recommend yeah. you rush out and buy Dusty the Classic Biography yeah. by Lucy O'Brien, as well as, of course, Shebop. Shebop 3. Yes. I don't know if you call it Shebop 3. Is it Shebop 3 uh, now? Uh, we have, I've got yeah. Shebop well, 2 in front of me. It's actually Shebop, the definitive history of women in popular music and just third edition. But I just want to say, if people <laughs> are listening to this before the 4th of September, I'm doing a special Dusty Night at the Dublin Castle. Oh, the great. Rock and Roll Book Club are hosting it. Oh, great. So do come along and if you if you go on to we got tickets you'll see dusty the classic biography and do come along oh fantastic uh, it'd be lovely to meet you and fantastic thank you fabulous. so much for coming in it's been really really brilliant thank you uh, i've really enjoyed it wonderful well i know that um, well, you, uh, you guys will be here next week i won't i'll be on holiday Lucky but slime. you are welcoming uh, next week's guest david stubbs david stubbs oh, is coming brilliant. in brilliant to yes. talk about among other things slade francis rossi <laughs> and of course david's own that, Career and his own books. Yes, uh, and Mars, Mars, by 19, and Mars by 1989. <laughs> Soon. Bye. 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 Actually, it's amazing, way more amazing. Quincy Jones told me. I, <laughs> he basically said, Try to figure out how to make horizontal money. And horizontal money is money that you make while you're laying down. Sure. So, in being in the spotlight, you, you have to be everywhere, you have to appear, you have to be there, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And if you're able to help other people find wonderful things in themselves yeah. and help them to get their chance, yeah. then you're able to yeah. do many things. As laying down meaning Meaning sleeping, relaxing, sleeping. chilling on the couch, sleeping watching television. Yeah. Sure. Whatever it is you might be doing. That was Alicia Keys in conversation with Maureen Payton in 2010, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Lucy O'Brien. The new edition of Dusty, the classic biography, is out now and published by Michael O'Mara Books. Find Lucy's other work online at lucyobrien.co.uk. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.